This episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast is sponsored by AWS Energy. AWS brings the most advanced and secure cloud services and deep industry expertise across energy, utilities, and sustainable energy sectors. Together with a broad partner ecosystem, AWS is accelerating the energy transition through practical innovations to deliver energy efficiently, reliably, sustainably, and responsibly. Learn more at aws.amazon.com slash energy. Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Pratush Nag, Managing Director, Controls and Digital Digitalization at Siemens Energy. Many of you may have, have had some exposure to Siemens, but maybe less so to Siemens Energy. There is, There are large, they, they do a lot. And I think that's the easiest way to explain it. And I'm excited to have Pratush on here to talk about just one of those aspects. So instead of me rambling more, Pratush, let's get you on the mic to start this conversation. Thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would please share with me and the audience your background and a quick introduction to Siemens Energy and your role in the company. Yeah, I mean, uh, what we do in Siemens Energy is very simple. We energize society, and that's as simple as that. And, of course, that uh, when you take on the bigger aspects of what that means is we bring electricity to consumers like you and me and billions of people around the world. And we do that by, by having technology which is clean and sustainable. That's in a nutshell of what we do. My role in Siemens Energy, I've been working here now for uh, 22 plus years, and uh, my role currently is to lead the business of controls and digitalization. But before that, I have been in the gas turbine business where we, we have developed several new gas turbines where we are taking the technology one notch every time to improve the efficiency of the product utilize the fuels to the maximum capability and bringing clean energy to our customers and to consumers like you and me. That is, that's very exciting. And, uh, and I started to reach out and, and try to get you on the show because I saw that, that you and your group at Siemens Energy has recently, or maybe not whatever recent is, you have some Guinness World Records associated with energy production. Is that right? 
That's absolutely right. So we have um, achieved a world record, or actually multiple world records now, uh, of having the uh, a Guinness World Record for the largest simple cycle gas turbine in the whole world. This is located in a Duke Energy Facility in North Carolina. And this same unit has a second Guinness World Record of having uh, the fastest ramp-up capability. It can ramp at the rate of 100 plus megawatts a second. So it, it can move up and down uh, and load up uh, to complement the renewable energy that is there in the grid, which is a solar or a wind energy. Of course, when the sun doesn't shine or the wind doesn't blow, we need a sustainable power to immediately ramp up very quickly to be able to support the grid. So this is the second world record of having the fastest um, ramping capability of a gas turbine. And then there is recently now a third world record, which is about having um, the largest combined cycle power plant in the whole world. This is located uh, in UK with a customer, Scottish and Southern Electric. Uh, so there are three world records of the same product line, which we call the 9000HL, which I had the pleasure to develop over the last eight years and, and now is uh, one of the leading products in the market. And, and as you can see, three world records for, for the same product. Yeah, yeah, that is, it's fascinating to, to hear those records and and the the value of those and i think for those of us who who work in the energy space and understand energy markets and and grid demand we understand the value of ramp up but just in case some of the some of the other audience members who may not understand the value there what when we talk about ramp up and we talk about the size of the turbine, those being those records, and and combined cycle turbine, largest power plant in the simple cycle turbine in the world. What are the actual challenges that that you are trying to solve that ultimately led to developing these that are the the biggest and the fastest in the world? Very good question, uh, Joe. So what we come across in the energy industry today is what we call the energy trilemma. The energy trilemma is comprises, of course, three challenges that we have. One is sustainability, to having sustainable energy. The second one is reliability, so that we have reliable power to the grid. And so when we turn on a light switch, the bulb lights up or the AC turns on and affordability and affordable power. So to get it to the masses and, and all the people around the world who deserve to have electricity, it's currently the heart and a basic need. So in order to solve this trilemma, we have to come up with technologies that can balance all of the three aspects of sustainability, affordability, and reliability. And in order to do that, when we have a wind turbine or we have a solar turbine giving feeding electricity to the grid, and sometimes it uh, it doesn't happen, right? Because it's, it depends on nature. And then we have to have another way to bring on uh, the remaining capacity that is needed. So when all of us come back to our homes and turn on our ACs at six o'clock in the evening, then there's a sharp demand in the in the in the electricity need in the grid. 
But this is, of course, at the same time when the sun is probably not there and as much, and if there is no wind, then you need a sustainable power in order to balance the grid. And that's when these fast ramping capabilities come in very handy to the to the operators. They can just push a button, and in literally 10 minutes, they can put 400 megawatts which is a lot, which is uh, about, uh, and then for the combined cycle, it's almost 800, 900 megawatts, which is enough for a small city. One machine of this size in combined cycle is enough for a small city to have power um, to millions of people. And that's the capability, that's the size we're talking about, and that's the fast ramp up we're talking about, which is extremely important to solve this energy trilemma. Yeah, yeah. I guess I didn't realize the that size of of hundreds of megawatts, and that that ramp that you said earlier about about the number of megawatts per second able to grow, being at full capacity in ten minutes. I guess is what you're saying there. Hundred megawatts a minute. That's the ramp rate, uh, and then that means you can get to full load in. Uh, in less than five minutes, if you're already idling, and if you're if you're in a cold start mode, you can also get it uh, get it in in very 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 fast time. So wow. it's really really fast. So and that makes a big difference in terms of ramping up and down. And sometimes you ramp down as well because when the sun is back up or or the wind is back up, and then you have uh, the much lower carbon footprint. And so you want to optimize the carbon footprint of the grid. And this is where the balancing comes in to make to our net zero goals that we have. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that kind of ramp up is coming from Texas and thinking about ERCOT and, and what I know about the grid and and the way that on-demand power and forecasting is usually a 15-minute window. Some places it may be an hour window. But if you can ramp up in five to ten minutes – that is a that is a very you you could be bidding kind of one step out and it makes sense that you actually are are almost as real time as possible at that speed that's absolutely correct and in fact that's where the digital part of our business comes in which i also lead Um, and here we have tools and algorithms which can basically predict Weather models, when we, it has weather data, it has the ERCOT. Take the example of ERCOT. That's a very good example because you're right. It, it actually is a 15-minute interval bidding. So what happens is this model essentially has a digital twin of our product, of our engine, in that. And then it looks at data, weather data, bidding data, and basically predicts for the user when they should go into bidding depending on the capability of the network and the capability of the instrument and the, and the machines that they have. So for example, the operator that has a Siemens energy machine can bid really fast on live, live on time within the 15 minute window knowing that they can start up and get into that uh, base load capacity and of course in a very profitable manner for them. And depending on the weather conditions, they are able to predict that and then actually they have to, it's an auction mechanism, so they can predict that. And of course, it's a very profitable mechanism for them. Our digital tools is, is something which is very handy for, for their profitability. Yeah, yeah. And I, I can see the value when you've got this, this 
quick ramping turbine, but let's talk about this digital a little bit more because I, and I guess we'll get back to the turbine, but what about the people who don't have this very quick ramping turbine? If you've got something that may take 30 minutes or an hour or, or two or three hours or something that doesn't respond so quickly is are these same forecasts and the same predictability and these same algorithms are they are they still valuable or is there like a i guess is there a point where where they start to struggle if that makes sense the the algorithms take into consideration the product that they have and the capabilities of the product that they have. So the so the algorithm that we have is agnostic of uh, the machine that uh, that is there, and and the, it could be of course different sources of electricity as well. It doesn't have to be a naturally a gas turbine all the time. It can also be wind turbines or or solar turbines and, and things like that. It can be different things. So it takes the entire fleet of generation capability that uh, that an operator has and it can optimize and bid into different places with different kind of equipment to saying okay we predict the sun is going to be very hot at this time the heat uh, heat load is very high it can predict that let's go solar at this point in time and then it can say okay let's go turn on our gas turbine feed at this time so they can switch between a different operating uh, fleet to optimize their uh, carbon footprint, the sustainability. So you can basically define the parameters of the algorithm to say, okay, I want to optimize the carbon footprint, right? So then it tries to optimize carbon footprint. And and based on that, it can predict which machine to turn on at what time. Very interesting. And I guess then if we're talking about, you use the example of carbon footprint, but if, if you had a an individual utility or individual owner operator who wanted to optimize for electricity price or total peak demand that is also something they can do absolutely yeah certainly and aircot is a great example like you mentioned it's a very flu- uh, very auction generated um, so it is very fluctuating on price so you can absolutely bid into uh, depending on what your cost of production is and what uh, what they call a spark spread. That's defined as spark spread, the cost of production, and and the bid value or the price of the electricity. And if they see that they can be in in the profit regime, then they can bid. The advantage that comes in with a very fast ramping machine is that they can really optimize how long they need to be operating. If you have a machine that needs an hour to start up or two hours to start up, they could be operating, they could be on a standby mode, if you may, and then burning fuel at not a profitable situation. So they are losing money at that point and, of course, utilizing a lot of CO2, which they don't necessarily generate profitable electricity at that point of time. The advantage of a fast ramping machine is that they can really minimize their carbon footprint and ramp just when needed so as needed electricity is possible yeah. with these fast ramping yeah. machines and i i could see that if you are sitting on standby for one or two hours and you are assuming say that you are going to see a need in a few hours it could very well be that if you're you're on some type of weather dependency in order to have that need maybe that need never comes and now you've you've ended up 
burning fossil fuels and also not generating any profit. Precisely. And that that's a lose-lose. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's why so, we have evolved technology in multiple dimensions to solve this trilemma that I was talking about. It's it's a multiple dimensional problem. It's not a single uh, approach of, of just the technology being better, but it's also about how do we take into consideration all the conditions that an operator uh, operates with. Yeah. Yeah. So when you do start combining these, what do you have any examples on what kind of energy efficiency improvements or or any type of fuel savings or cost savings you've seen from clients that you can share with us? So the the machines, the latest generation machines that we are developing, the 9000HL, for example, it has a, a, an efficiency of 63% and above. above. But that's... That's also very, very uh, almost a world record for, for that, having that kind of an efficiency. So that is one of the most efficient ways of utilizing the fossil fuels that, that can be. Just to give a f- comparison of feel for it, um, your car that you're driving, uh, if you're not driving an electric car, uh, is about uh, somewhere between 35 to 40% uh, efficient. So. Having a, a gas turbine is at least 50% better than using a car to generate electricity. So when you are using a, an electric car, for example, you are drawing from the electricity that is at least 60% efficient, plus efficient instead of burning your own at 40% efficiency. So you are losing a lot of energy uh, that could have been utilized better. That's the magnitude of improvement that we can bring when we can generate electricity in in a large scale yeah yeah that's that's a really good point that i think we don't think about when we talk about evs is is that efficiency component of of being able to generate from a a large more more efficient lower carbon source that's a a very high quality newer genset what about one thing that that we always talk about is that spread of 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 standby power that is ready to go versus the demand the supply versus the demand for electricity and that's when we start getting messages from ERCOT saying hey we need everybody to turn their thermostats up because we're about to hit a point of where we're dangerously low with this kind of forecasting do you how has that kind of how do you see changes in that that supply and demand and those risk points of where those two end up intersecting, meaning we have too much demand and not enough supply? Yeah, this is, uh, of course, a very big, big challenge uh, with the operators. You don't want to have, on one hand, you don't want to have assets sitting idle and, and not being utilized. These are, of course, very expensive pieces of equipment, and the cost of capital is is huge so you can quite understand they don't want to have too many idling assets on the other hand you you have these big demands on that coldest day for example what happened in texas a few years ago where there was this cold front that came through and and really was was devastating uh, for for a lot of people and you want to avoid these kind of situations right so what they have to do and what we can do is to provide them with tools like these energy forecasting 
uh, algorithms which take into account the weather data or say in case of a hurricane approaching or things like that. So they can build that, take that NOAA data into account and predict on what preparations needs to be done and what kind of uh, equipment that needs to be uh, maybe getting ready. For example, maybe they were planning an outage uh, of a certain fleet of turbines and they will say, well, let's postpone that outage because there is a hurricane coming or something like this. So they can do a, a sort of condition-based evaluation of the entire fleet of what they can maximize production versus uh, looking at different kind of weather patterns or other constraints that, that may come in. Okay. Yeah, so there is there is this long-term benefit and, and understanding and then also that very real near-term kind of anywhere from the daily forecasting out to weekly or even monthly. And I I realize we've we've kind of been talking around it. I'd like to dig a little bit more if if we can because we talk about these models, everybody can see the two simple lines from an ERCOT supply and demand and we know weather's weather goes in. You've just mentioned planned outages for maintenance and and I guess to stop rambling, what are some of these larger things that maybe the public doesn't think about on a daily basis that ultimately could change that supply and demand curve? And and I guess a, a follow-up to that is, is that something that is ever-changing? Is that something that may be different in six months or, or potentially two or five years? Uh, absolutely, yes and yes. Um, so it is ever-changing and, and it, it will change over the next years because, of course, global warming is happening. We are seeing the effect. I think everybody can see it and, and, and we will have to adapt. And to be also very honest to ourselves, uh, we are not able to ramp down our or get to our climate goals or sustainability goals as a world, I would say, as fast as we want it to, right? So things have to change. Things are changing. Uh, what we can do. So your first question was, what can you do as as a consumer, as as uh, individual? I mean, there are very simple things that you can do of uh, adapting the thermostat a little bit, just a little bit. Each little bit helps. Uh, a degree of uh, of change in your thermostat say, setting can be a significant improvement because we're talking about not you and I alone, but you're talking about billions of people. And this adds up to a significant saving in electricity, whether it's uh, putting you know, a degree up when, uh, when it's not necessary, maybe turn on the fan, which can be better to circulate the air in, inside your house or uh, to use a little less heating, yeah? maybe put on a jacket or, or, or a, a throw or something like this to to save that little bit of energy, and to use energy energy efficient devices, whether it's your air conditioner um, or your um, heater or, or water heater. So using uh, energy efficiency rating to check the energy efficiency rating when you buy your new appliances to make sure that we contribute, we as individuals contribute every little bit that that goes to help. All right. Yeah, I like that. Well, I want to, before we wrap up here, I want to get back to the turbine because I do have a few additional questions about the turbine. The first one being, 
how many of these turbines are are out there in the market installed generating electricity? Well, I mean, uh, the Siemens Energy fleet is uh, quite large. We have uh, thousands of gas turbines operating in, in the in the fleet. So, and there there are different sizes of machines, starting from two megawatts all the way up to the 900 megawatt machine, and there are different fleet sizes, of course. The HL that we talked about, uh, we have uh, sold 25, uh, over 25 of them, and then um, more than a handful are already operating uh, in the field. So there's uh, there's already a lot of operation that we have seen, uh, very successful. Customers are very happy with the operation of the machine, and uh, we we get a lot of requests to uh, to build more. Yeah, that's exciting. And I think it, it's it's very exciting because these are the basically the the for this is me saying it, not you, but these are the the biggest, the best, the the fastest out there. And it really is it's exciting to see because you're you're putting those very high end, very very valuable pieces of machinery into use and and I know a lot of people will say, oh, well, one, okay, cool. That's that's a fun demonstration. But 25 at at hundreds of megawatts each, we're talking about getting into the gigawatt scale. And gigawatt scale, they can ramp up very fast, which also means not having things sitting and idling and, and putting out all the CO2 and other emissions. And and it it quickly adds up to, to great savings on on all fronts now the flip side of that why a natural gas turbine why not something like a hydrogen turbine or or something else that is that is even even greener than natural gas that's a great question actually that's uh, exactly what we are working on Um, we are capable of burning hydrogen in our gas turbines that has been the research that is going on so uh, what we are preparing for is the new world of the hydrogen world of the hydrogen economy. This is coming. We are absolutely certain about it, and we are putting our heads and minds together to build the gas turbines which have flexible fuels because it will also shift. So the, our idea is not to have a hydrogen gas turbine, but have a flexible gas turbine which can run on both natural gas and hydrogen flexibly, and also can blend with each other. And this is what we are also expecting that. Uh, operators will see that blends of hydrogen will come in to uh, to the fuel supply. So we have some of our turbines which are already capable of burning 100% hydrogen, already operating and, and capable of doing that, some of our fleet. And then some of our fleet have anywhere between 50% to 100% uh, operation capability. The 9000HL that I just talked about, that size of machine is capable of burning 50% hydrogen already. Wow. So that's a lot of hydrogen that's necessary, but it's a lot of CO2 savings that you get out of, of having that much of hydrogen. It's, it's millions uh, of tons of CO2 that you save uh, by, by having 50% hydrogen capability on, on the gas turbine. And that's what yeah. this is. This is the best in, in the market. This is the most efficient and the most hydrogen capability that is there available. Yeah. Why well, I... I... I really like that because this is something that that I end up talking about a lot in the geothermal industry and that that 
transitionary phase of oil and gas into geothermal and how do those two intersect and how can they work together and one of the ideas is developing infrastructure that both can use and that that can go from present day and into a a low carbon future and it sounds like that's exactly what you're doing you Mm -hmm. have you have developed these turbines so that they can run on what is available today so that we can continue to meet energy demands and then they can transition with the development of the hydrogen hubs and the hydrogen economy into the future and i think that's the that is what if if i was able to promote anything it would be build today for tomorrow and it's very exciting to to hear that that is what what y'all are doing what we say is our products are future ready Mm, i like it that is a a good way to say it well with that i think i want to transition into the final questions these are the questions that i ask all of my guests so they're they're a little bit a little bit different a little bit more fun that first question being what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend oh this is a really hard one <laughs> <laughs> um i have really enjoyed uh, richard Feynman. Um, so I would recommend uh, his books. He, he's uh, very fun to read and can can explain science to a lot of people, and and that's that's a that's one of my favorites. All right. Do you have a specific book of his all that you his, like? All his books are nice. I, I like uh, all a lot of, of them. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. Well, I will add that one to the list. Now the next question is. How do we get to net zero? Uh, this is a really good question and a really hard one. Um, I think uh, it's an evolution. It, we will not get to net zero on one fine day. We'll wake up and we are net zero. This will, uh, I, I don't think this will happen. I think uh, it's a progression over time. And it will take a, a lot of development in technology, um, a lot of work on our, as consumer sides, that little changes that, that we, we talked about. And it's also about expectations and, and what we need to do as individuals, as citizens of the world, and as technologists to, to develop the, the newer, greener technologies, have sustainable energy in our minds every day, everything that we do. It's also a mindset that, that needs to change to get there. Yeah. Yeah, I I like that. I think that's definitely the what we need is is everything you just touched on. We need the mindset, we still need technology development and we need we need some level of consumer habits changing and and doing it all together, I think is the key. Because that is we're not going to be able to do it piecemeal. So it's a it's a fun one to think about and always exciting to hear how people are thinking about it. So now the last question is you actually get to ask me a question. So uh, in, in the, in, you have covered a, a quite a range of topics uh, that you in energy, you, you talk from geothermal to, of course, sustainable energy. And, and you, you, you cover a lot of different kind of speakers. Um, what is what what challenges you? To, to be here and why do you do this? What's the motivation? 
That that is a a good question because there. I think what so what motivates me, what challenges me, why I'm I'm doing this podcast still going on year three here, is. I think the the more unique ideas, the more unique technologies and and individual or company or 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 idea focused thoughts and mindsets that I can highlight, I think it can help more people find solutions. And that's, I mean, that's the, the, the goal of the podcast. It's energy transition solutions, because if we want to get to net zero as a society, there is going to be a transition of our current energy ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that, I know, I, I think that that, and there's going to be a transition in the way that we think about energy and how we think about using energy. So, and one more and, and I I don't necessarily think it's gonna be the same for everybody. The way that we use energy here in Texas right now is different than the way you're using energy. It's different than the way the, the people in, forget where I was talking to people today earlier on the phone, but in Denver and the UK and Paris, France, we all use energy differently. And so how we actually get to what we want to do, which I think if we can establish, we want to get to net zero and what is net zero, if we can establish that as a society, then we can all figure out how to get there and how to get there on an individual and then maybe a communal and then a corporate basis. So what motivates me is is the fact that there are so many solutions out there. I think the more that I can highlight and help other people learn about, maybe the more solutions can get implemented and the faster we can get to net zero. So that's kind of what what keeps me going. There's also it's just fun to learn. So as long as as long as um, I keep getting to int- interview interesting people and as long as I'm still having fun and learning something, I think that I will keep doing it. And That's I don't see that stopping anytime soon. <laughs> That's awesome. I guess curiosity yeah. and the responsibility of a global citizen is what drives you. Yes. That's awesome. Yeah. That is a, a good, succinct way to put it. Awesome. Yep. Well, Pratush, thank you for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you'd like to say? No, I think the uh, only thing I would summarize of saying is uh, this sustainability goal that we have is all of our goals. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's not uh, only responsibility of the utility companies or, or uh, the energy producing company. We as global citizens all have the responsibility to solve this not only for us, but for our children and their children and the future generations. And we got to leave uh, leave this world. I believe I want to leave this world 
a cleaner place than I came into. And that's my goal as a person. And this is what I work for. And uh, we in Siemens Energy, all of us, we energize society in a clean, sustainable way so that we can leave the world just a bit cleaner than we entered this. Yep. I like that. I think that's a good thing to, to leave this conversation on. So, Pratush, thank you again. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you would like to hear more of. If you want more news and energy-related stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. One more thing, I have a quick favor to ask. I have a one-question survey that I want you to fill out. The link for that is in the show notes. Please go fill that out, and if you do, we can send you some stickers. And the last thing, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email. That email is joe.batir at oggn.com. If you don't use email, find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.